Well, this morning is something of a new experience for me. During my seven years or the seven years that I've been here at Faith Bible, this has always been Mitch Tucker's preaching slot just before Thanksgiving. Uh, But I'm delighted because there's something about the rich, slow simplicity of Thanksgiving that I find very satisfying. One of the reasons is that we've never really figured out a way to commercialize Thanksgiving. Uh, The pilgrims that you see on TV, they don't do much for me. Um, There's not a Santa Claus or an Easter bunny to distract and confuse. It's just simple. Uh, The other reason is that Thanksgiving, unlike some other holidays, uh, at least in their corrupted form, uh, is about what we have, not about what we want. This morning, we're going to be thinking about how the Lord would have us respond properly to to God's good gifts this Thanksgiving as we come toward this uh, very special holiday on Thursday. And on a holiday that is uh, associated with food, uh, I've chosen a particularly unappetizing passage for us in that it deals with leprosy. Luke 17, chapter, uh, Luke 17, verse 11 down through 19. Luke 17, verse 11 down through 19 is where we're headed. This section. This passage comes to us from a part of the Gospel of Luke that Bible commentators often call Luke's travel log. Have you ever noticed how Luke makes particular use of geography in both his Gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles? Uh, Jesus starts out in Luke in Galilee. And then in chapter 9, he turns his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. And then from chapter 9 to chapter 19, Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem, and he meets all sorts of characters. Some trust in him, some don't, and a theme is that those who ought to trust in him, who ought to have known about him, typically don't. And then at the end of Luke, of course, Jesus makes atonement in Jerusalem. And then, just to finish the thought, have you ever noticed in Acts how it starts out in Jerusalem, and then the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth? Luke loves geography And we're in that travel log in chapter 17 as Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And he's going to meet some people here. Follow along as I read 17.11 through 19 and then we'll discuss the passage together. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee... And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. 
and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. First three verses of this passage, we meet the ten lepers who recognize Jesus. Don't miss out on the details of this little passage. Notice, first of all, that Luke tells us that Jesus was traveling along the border between Galilee and Samaria. Remember how the geography goes. You have the Sea of Galilee up here, you have the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea down here. West of the Sea of Galilee, you have, well, Galilee. West of the Dead Sea, you have Judea, including the city of Jerusalem. And in between, you have Samaria. If you want to go to Jerusalem from Galilee, you have to go south. Jesus is traveling along the border between Galilee and Samaria. He's going west to east, or east to west. You see, Jesus is not making a beeline for Jerusalem. He's not traveling the way we travel. He's going to get there eventually. But along the way, he's meeting people. And he's giving people an opportunity to respond to him in faith. And we know that from the head of the greater section here. Uh, Look up uh, the page, if you would, to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 17. His disciples say to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed... You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is not telling us how to garden in the spirit here. He's simply telling us that in God's economy, there is no other response that counts other than faith. And then in the chapters following this and and around this passage, Jesus meets people who respond to him in faith. And a theme here is that these are people that often were on the outside of society, people that you wouldn't think would respond to him. He meets Gentiles, including this Samaritan that he heals today. He meets soldiers, children. He meets women who were looked down upon in the day. And he meets lepers. Ten lepers in our passage hail Jesus from where? A distance. 
Don't imagine these guys walking up to Jesus and just having a face-to-face conversation with him. Uh, These guys are, well, picture them in the back over there, the back row, and they see Jesus from a distance and they shout, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's hard for us to grasp what it would have felt like to think, to even think, that you might have leprosy, let alone to actually have it. The closest we can come in our society is cancer. If you've ever had a biopsy or an MRI or a CAT scan, you might just begin to understand this. In our world, we go in and we... They put us in the machine, and the machine, probably loud if it's an MRI, and it begins to take pictures, more and more pictures, and you have to lie very still. And then after a period of time, you begin to think this should end, but it doesn't. It keeps going on. They keep doing more and more pictures. Pretty soon you realize they're redoing pictures. They're focusing on a particular part of the body. And then when it finally ends, they put you in a little room. And then the radiologist comes in, or maybe your family doctor calls, and he says, they found something. That's us. They would have felt something similar. Medically, in the Old Testament, leprosy uh, really is a description of a wide range of skin diseases, including what in the 19th century we began to call Hansen's disease. But it could also include any of a variety of psoriasis, lupus, or even ringworm. Some varieties were contagious, others were not. Some varieties were temporary. Others were were permanent. Leviticus 13 and 14, kind of getting into that part of Leviticus that people don't read very much, it describes, these two chapters describe the procedure for dealing with leprosy. When you had a discoloration on the skin or a boil, you would go to the priest and the priest would examine the discoloration or the boil and and perhaps prescribe a waiting period, and then you might recover. But if you didn't, and the disease proved to be truly leprous, then you would be pronounced unclean. You'd be removed from civil society, and you'd live perhaps in a leper colony outside the village. When the clean approached, you would be required to shout, unclean, unclean. Or maybe you'd just put some bells on yourself so you could make a tinkling noise and save yourself the trouble of shouting out. Skin would become infected, nerves would die, numb fingers would become burned or injured, digits would fall off, and then you, the leper, would finally die. But as bad as that 
was and is, it was more than a dread physical disease. It involved social isolation and separation from the formal worship of God's people in the temple. And in time, as scripture describes leprosy, particularly in the ministry of Jesus, leprosy becomes a picture of sin and its ravaging results. The numbness of the human heart as it dies to the things of God, the corruption of the flesh, separation from God, despair, and finally, death, eternal death. That's where our guys are, our ten lepers who are shouting at Jesus from a distance. That's what they've experienced. That's where they live, separated from civil society. And then they see Jesus. And they recognize in him their last and only hope. What does Jesus do? Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Leviticus 14 describes what Jesus is telling them to do here. Leviticus 14 describes the ritual sacrifice and and really the series of sacrifices that a leper would have undergone after his healing in order to be pronounced cleansed and fit for society again. It involved two birds. One would be killed. The other would be dipped in the blood of the slain bird and then released. It involved shaving and clothes washing and a further quarantine for seven days. And then on the eighth day, a lamb would be sacrificed as a further guilt offering. There would be wave offerings and sprinklings and blood placed behind the lobe of the ear. It was really something. A lot had to be done, and Jesus says, go, begin that cleansing ritual. Notice here there are a couple of irregularities, though, in the way Jesus does this. Normally, the the cleaning or cleansing ritual was to take place after the skin had healed. So the leper, if he could, would heal. And then to actually be cleansed formally, he would go to the priest. Jesus tells these guys (laughs) they're full of leprosy. He says, go, show yourselves to the priests right now, even though you're full of leprosy. And it's, of course, in the act of obeying Jesus that they're healed. But Jesus does it backwards, highly irregular. Also, the priest was to initiate the ritual, if you read Leviticus 14. You couldn't just walk into the temple full of leprosy. As Leviticus describes it, the priest was to go outside the camp in the early days and then the village in the later days and visit the leper colony. And the priest would examine the guys and begin the process. Apparently the priesthood had broken down. These guys are just out there. So Jesus says, go to the priests. Highly irregular. And as we've said, these guys are cleansed while they are obeying Jesus. 
Notice the details here. They're fully cleansed, not just healed. The cleansing ritual took place in the temple, but our text tells us they weren't just healed and made ready to be cleansed. They were actually cleansed right there on the spot from a distance as Jesus healed them. And they were made ready for full integration into society right there. Cleansed without the ritual, without the ceremonial washings and sacrifices, without a priest even, except for Jesus. Verses 15 through 19. And here we see that one changed formerly leprous Samaritan responds, giving thanks to Jesus. I'll read 15 and 16 again. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Notice the literary use of space here. Luke is presenting this in a very dynamic way. Up until now, there has been a great distance between Jesus and the people who are shouting at him and the people that he's shouting back to. Even the healing was done at a distance. But notice that as soon as Jesus heals and the man responds in faith, understanding who Jesus is, that distance between God and man collapses. And now Jesus and the man are together. The one changed formerly leprous man recognized that Jesus, not the law, was the source of God's blessing. Very interesting. He was healed, and then before he made it to the priest, he comes and he worships Jesus and gives praise to, the, to, to God, and the other guys go off to complete the ritual. A couple things to notice about Jesus here. Jesus keeps the law of Moses perfectly. Jesus knows that until he goes to the cross the people are still under the Mosaic law. He could have said, okay, just blow off the law. <laughs> blow it off. I'm here now. I don't even need to go to the priests. But Jesus goes through the routine that God has prescribed. The law isn't bad. The purpose of the law was to point people to Jesus, and it's still in effect until Jesus goes to the cross. And so in a very real sense, the people are still under law until Jesus has finished his work. He upholds the law. He tells these guys, go to the priests. But even as Jesus upholds the law, he is fulfilling the law of Moses. Matthew 5.17, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he has said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Somehow, the, the, the one formerly leprous man 
understands this about Jesus. And he knows that his real healing comes not from the law and the priest, but from Jesus himself. He's not cleansed because he's been to a priest, but because he's encountered Jesus and responded in faith. At this point, Jesus asks three questions. And we see them in verses 16 and following. Were not ten cleansed? Jesus says. One, were not ten cleansed? Yes. Where are the nine? And here we see that the number of people who receive from Jesus is greater than the number of those who properly respond to him by faith. They received. They didn't respond as the one. The third question. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Foreigner. The word meant pagan or heathen. The historian Josephus tells us that this is the exact word that appeared on the gate, uh, on the wall that gave entrance to the inner part of the temple where only Jews could go. Foreigners were not allowed in there. And here Jesus makes a point of saying, this is a foreigner. And he has responded properly. And we see again here that some of those who respond to Jesus are unlikely, while those who ought to respond rightly rightly to Jesus are sometimes nowhere to be found. And then Jesus commands him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The Samaritan has directed his thanksgiving to Jesus, and he's offered it in faith. He has responded properly. What about the other nine? Uh, They received from God, too, didn't they? In fact, they obeyed him. They did what he told them to do. And I'm sure that they were thankful. They got to go home that night and as cleansed people, they got to enjoy the evening with their families. I'm sure they were grateful. Likewise thankful. We don't know about the condition of their hearts. It isn't the point of the passage to tell us everything that was going on in their hearts. But the clear implication of the passage is that in failing to connect God's blessing with the person of Jesus, they've missed the moment. They failed to give thanks to Jesus in faith. And I really think there is a thanksgiving message here for us. Can you see it? Like the nine, everybody receives from God. Matthew 5, 6 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Believers and non-believers alike uh, harvest the crops and enjoy the produce of the land. People are released every day from mercy in St. Luke's, having 
been healed by God. Yes, through medicine and the hands of doctors and nurses, but nonetheless, they are being healed by God. And like the nine, everyone will be thankful in general this Thursday. We're all going to be thankful, unless you have to work, for the day off, right? For family, for turkey, pumpkin pie, a nap in your favorite chair. When you wake up, you can watch the cowboys. You don't have to cheer for them. You just have to watch them. There's Black Friday for shoppers among us and all those good deals, and we're all thankful, and all these things are good in their place. Everybody's going to be thankful on Thursday. That's what it's about. But like the one... Those of us who come to Jesus by faith will be thankful for a particular person who did particular things in dying for our sins, being being buried and then being raised again. And that's what it means to direct our thanksgiving to Jesus in particular and to offer it in faith, and it's because he did those things in that particular way that all the other stuff has meaning as well. Thanksgiving is a celebration about what we really need. And like the ten, we're all lepers, and we need to be restored to God first and then to each other. And like the ten, we're distant from God. That's how we start out in life. And we need to be brought near. But like the one, we receive what we truly need directly by faith in Jesus. And then we enjoy his blessings, including what we're thankful for uh, on Thursday. So this Thanksgiving, uh, our proper response to God's good gifts is, will be, ought to be, and I'm sure will be, uh, Thanksgiving directed to Jesus and offered in faith. In your bulletin, there is a little sermon insert, if you don't already have it. Uh, I'd like to offer a few suggestions for how you can focus your Thanksgiving time as a family. There on the insert, there are a number of uh, psalms that are listed. Psalm 9, Psalm 29, Psalm 32, Psalm 33, Psalm 34, 95, 1 through 3, and then verses 6 and 7. Why don't you, before Thursday, read through those psalms? Maybe do it as a family even. Uh, Pick a psalm. Think about how the blessings that are described in that psalm are available to you by faith in Christ and are yours in Christ if you've trusted in him. And then choose a response. I made some suggestions. Why don't you just share that psalm with a friend? If you're not responsible for your own family, you could just call up a friend and share one of these psalms with them. Uh, Children. My kids like to make nameplates for people who come to Thanksgiving dinner. They like to write the name of the person who's coming. And kids, you could just grab a couple verses from these psalms and write out the verse and 
in that way prepare the table and, and, and think about how God has blessed you and how you're thankful in Jesus. Dads, I've got a special job for you. Why don't you choose one of these psalms and simply read it to the family before the dinner on Thursday. Don't, don't delegate this to your wife. Don't, don't give it to one of the kids. Do it yourself. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to give a speech. Uh, and you just, just read it to the family. And as you do this, and as we emerge from Thanksgiving and begin to turn our hearts to Christmas, uh, let this spirit of Thanksgiving prepare us for the coming, the celebration of the coming of Jesus. He is who we truly need, and Thanksgiving is preparation for that. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this passage that reminds us that your blessings are everywhere. We'll celebrate your blessings uh, this Thanksgiving. Uh, But unlike those who don't know you, who enjoy your blessings probably without even realizing it, we know where those blessings come from. We know they come from the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we enjoy the, the trappings of this season, the family time and the food, and simply the quiet simplicity of being together at this uh, special time of year, we ask that you'd help us to really worship you, to direct our thanks to Jesus uh, in particular, and to offer them by faith. We pray it in his name. Amen.